This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to the James Wilson Podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Charles Murray. Dr. Murray holds the F.A. Hayek Chair Emeritus in Cultural Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He's the author of a new book, Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America, from Encounter Books. Dr. Murray is also the author of The Bell Curve, a New York Times bestseller he co-authored with the late Richard J. Hernstein, which sparked heated controversy for its analysis of the role of IQ in shaping America's class structure, and Coming Apart, the State of White America from 1960 through 2010. Also joining us on the podcast is Tom Sarouf, one of our interns at the James Wilson Institute. Tom, why don't you get us started? Dr. Charles Murray, thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure. I think the most apt place to start is by addressing the reasons that you wrote this book. Um, You say towards the end of chapter one, and I'm quoting, One audience is a special priority for me, people on the center-left who are in the tradition that extended from FDR through Bill Clinton and included Senator Joe Biden. What is your sense of why this group deserves a special focus right now? Because the center-left has been cowed into silence. That's the only way I can read the absence of criticism of the critical race theory uh, argument, the systemic racism arguments more generally. Ever since the fall, the summer, I should say, of uh, 2020, after the riots and protests, the mainstream media has been uniformly uncritical of any of that presentation. Not just uncritical, they bought into it. So that it is presented as if everybody knows that the disparities in policing have to be due to racism. What else can it be? The uh, disparities in the labor market, the lack of senior officials in major US uh, corporations who are black, uh, it has to be racism. What else can it be? So the center left knows better, I think. I think the center left knows that there has been a long history of the existence of disparities between blacks and whites, whatever their causes may be. And those disparities, once you correct uh, for IQ, for example, are are radically reduced. Once you correct for the difference in violent crime rates in black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods, a lot of the differences in policing, those disparities disappear. A lot of people in the center left know this. This is not rocket science. It is not the case that nobody has ever known these disparities are out there, but they haven't said anything. And I hope that this book will make it easier for them to say, well, I'm not as bad as Charles Murray, but we've got to recognize that and then start to raise some of these arguments, which can be done perfectly consistently from a center left philosophy and and, and slowly try to get the conversation back to one in which it is apparent that the mainstream view of America, and I'm confident this is true 
across all the races is still that in America, we're supposed to treat people as individuals. Uh, you aren't supposed to judge people as groups and, and, uh, and, and start to say out loud that this is the ideal, not getting rid of inequities in outcomes through government action. Most of your readers are aware uh, of your two most widely read books, uh, The Bell Curve uh, and Coming Apart. What's new about this book in terms of research since you co-authored The Bell Curve in 1994 and then Coming Apart in 2012? I'm tempted to say not one single solitary thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the facing reality does not break any new ground at all. And in fact, one of my purposes in the book was to stick so closely to the things that are extremely well established that really people aren't going to be able to argue empirically with the assertions that I make, or the assertions backed up by evidence uh, about the existence of disparities in violent crime rates and disparities in cognitive ability. So I, I deliberately kept it very, very basic in that regard. I will say in my own behalf that the data on violent crime rates by city uh, is, as far as I know, new. It has been known for a long time that when you aggregate at the national level that there's the disparity in violent crime rates between whites, blacks, Latinos, and, and, uh, and, and white, well, whites, blacks, Latinos, and Asians. Uh, but the data really have been pretty bad when you aggregate to the national level. And it's only in the last few years that police departments of major cities have started having publicly downloadable databases of their, of their entire uh, arrest records. And some of those cities include the race of the arrestee. So the data on uh, violent crime rates and their disparities are far more accurate than any previously published uh, data, as far as I know. Dr. Murray, at the heart of your book are the two truths about race in America. One is that the different racial groups have different cognitive abilities as measured by IQ, and the second being that the crime rates uh, between the racial groups are different. But how are these two truths related to each other, if at all? And, and then you know, also knowing well that neither of these two facts has a bearing on individuals within each racial group, which is something that you talk about frequently in the book. Yeah, and let's let's just start with making sure that everybody who's listening is clear on that. Uh, first start with crime. The proportion of people who commit violent felonies is really small in, mm -hmm. in all racial groups. There's a big uh, sex difference. Males commit vastly more than females do, uh, but there is it's still very small proportions of the population. You cannot look at someone and tell by the color of their skin whether you're in danger of them committing a violent offense. Just can't do it. Right. Uh, okay, so you have very small minorities uh, in each race who are involved in this, but the ratios of, of the two different rates are extremely high. Okay, so that's with crime. You cannot, you cannot tell a thing about a person's criminality by knowing their race. You don't know anything about individuals. In terms of cognitive ability, uh, you're talking about a difference in means. And I've got to say, one of the hardest things to do, I've discovered over 30 years of trying, is to get people to understand that differences in means represent overlapping distributions. 
it is not the case that when you have a difference in means, all the whites are on one side and blacks are on the other. I mean, this is so elementary that I can't believe how hard it is for people to get it, but mm -hmm. they, they seem to struggle. Millions of blacks are smarter than millions of whites. I try to say that in every single discussion I have of the book because it's a, it's a fact and it points to something that's really critical. If you want to know how smart somebody is, spend 10 minutes talking to them and you're going to know a lot more than you know by looking at what race they are. Uh, once again, however, a difference in means has all sorts of co social consequences, not at the individual level, but at the aggregate level. You anticipate pushback in the beginning of your book by pointing out the irony that in order to reach your goal, which is to abandon identity politics and group mentality, as you said earlier in this podcast, and return to government treating people as individuals, that you have to look at people in terms of their group identity. You reply that there's no way around it. But if I can push you a little bit further on this point, how is it that we get the individual if our built-in premise is to analyze them within the group? The purpose of analyzing them by groups is to establish that as of this day in July 2021, they, there exist group differences in crime rates and group differences in cognitive ability. Knowing those group differences exist, it then becomes imperative to treat people as individuals because the statistical tendencies associated with the group difference are very weakly predictive of any one individual. So therefore, when you're making hiring decisions, when you're admitting people to schools, when you're making any other kind of decision, point number one is, that it's it's wrong both uh, morally and also in terms of making smart decisions to assume the group attribute applies to any individual. You have to judge the individual on his own. But the other thing that you you have to keep in mind is that the existence of those differences is going to produce first order outcomes that are the subject of the allegations of systemic racism. And, and that paragraph uh, you quoted, I don't know whether what part of the book, uh, what part of the introduction is in, but I point out that unless we're willing to talk about the existence of group differences, we are helpless mm -hmm. against the arguments of the systemic racist people that uh, or the allegations of systemic racism, we're helpless against allegations of what else can it be? We passed the Civil Rights Act in 1964, and, and all these years later, we still have disparities in occupational and policing and things like that. Well, yeah, we do have the disparities, and the disparities are not the result of racism. They reflect group differences and traits. On the, uh, yeah, on the, on the, on the crime front, it may be you know a, a much tighter connection between age and gender. Um, in <laughs> in which case, as our founder and director Hadley Arcus has said, if you wanted to really reduce the crime rate, you'd just lock up all the males from 18 to 21, and then magically at age 21 they would <laughs> become a little more docile. <laughs> but we know that's absurd. But but, but he's absolutely right. Uh, you know, we talk about race differences in crime. They are trivial 
in comparison to the sex differences in, in crime, especially violent crime. You know, one of the things that stands out, you know, at least to me, when you do this analysis, is that when you look at the outcomes in terms of you know, cognitive ability or, or criminality, the common denominator are the racial groupings, which I think would lead one to conclude, especially when you take great care to debunk some of these environmental causes. For instance, you talk about people say that the IQ test is biased or racist somehow or that it underpredicts success. Uh, you take time in the book to trot out those arguments and expose their flaws. But when you get back to it, it seems that the common denominator are the racial groupings. And so one might conclude that race is causing these differences. But is your view that race is the actual causal variable here for why there are such discrepancies? Or is race just one variable, along with culture or age or sex, that can affect these outcomes as well? There's obviously... I think, obviously, as far as I'm concerned, a major role for culture to play in uh, certainly in the crime rates, but also in the difference in cognitive ability. Let me give you a simple example in terms of cognitive ability. Uh, One is that uh, some education is a lot better in terms of IQ than no education. Uh, We don't know how to jack up the quality of education and produce corresponding increases in IQ. That we don't know how to do. But we do know that when an educational system is put in place, that the IQ of the population rises. Been true internationally uh, for the last 150 years. Okay, now you take a look at the situation facing blacks in the 1930s, 1920s, when uh, those living still in the South were going to segregated Southern schools, which for blacks were often pathetic. Uh, both in the terms of the facilities and the teachers. You then had uh, improvements in education in the South during the 40s and 50s and 60s. And you also had a lot of uh, African-Americans who had gone North and their children were going to urban public schools. Believe it or not, before the 1960s, a lot of urban public schools in which African-Americans were a large proportion of the student body were good schools. They were just as good as the schools in which uh, most of the kids were white. Mm-hmm. It's it's only after it's only from the 1960s onward that you have gotten these chaotic classrooms uh, where nothing gets done and education in, in the black inner city has been degraded. But there was a period of time in which it was a lot better. And guess what? During that period of time, the size of the difference in uh, mental test scores went down. It narrowed, and I think that was cultural, without without question. In terms of crime, the same thing. Uh, you have you have a long historic record of higher criminal behavior in blacks and in whites. That does go back to the 19th century, but you also have had very different crime rates over within those time periods. Most recently, evidenced by the reduction in crime in the 1990s and 2000s, 2010s, basically until last year. Well, that those reductions are not because of any genetic changes in, uh, in, in blacks and whites and so forth, they're, they're cultural. So sure, there's, there's a role for culture. Uh, is there a role as well for uh, racial genetic differences? Probably yes. Uh, that's the most recent genetic work on the nature of 
of uh, differences across ancestral populations indicates, and what I'm about to say is not controversial among geneticists, indicates that you have quite different profiles of genetic variants across ancestral populations. And it's inevitable that you will have some differences in traits, whether they're big or small is another question. Somebody once put it this way, uh, I think it was Greg Cochran. He said, the chances that you can have different populations, human populations evolving in different parts of the world and they will come out exactly the same is about as good as your chance of dropping a fistful of silver dollars and they all land on their edge. Mm. You know, it's just a matter. It's, it's not a matter of inferiority, superiority. It's just a, a matter of different evolutionary pressures that people are under. So there's a role for both. Mind you to say that there is a role for genetics uh, still will get you branded uh, a Nazi in an awful lot of circles. Dr. Murray, last summer I spent about three months working as a research assistant for the uh, George Mason Law Professor David Bernstein, who is in the process of writing a book called The American Law of Race. And part of his book traces how we come to understand certain racial groupings. And it's not always because of precise genetic characteristics or shared um, genetic characteristics that we have our, our racial groupings um, as we understand them. One of the important things that a reader will notice very quickly in your book is that you actually do not use terms like white, black. You, you prefer to use more you know, countries or regions of origin. And what I guess I want to ask you is, to what extent do you find that our popular understanding of race cuts against the kind of precision that's needed to make the kind of refined uh, assessments that I think you're seeking to do um, in your research? Well, in the case of the group we call Hispanic or Latino, there are major problems because you have uh, some, I'll, I'll use the phrase Latino, I like it better than Hispanic for a variety of reasons. You have some Latinos who are basically 100% of European ancestry. Uh, probably from Iberia, but, but European ancestry. Then you have others who are full-blooded indigenous peoples like the Mayans or one of the many other Central American populations which still have relatively pure uh, uh, genetic uh, signatures. But what you have most of all is what's called mestizo, which is that, it's some, that you've had intermarriage starting early on between Europeans and indigenous peoples, and then the products of those marriages kept intermarrying. And mestizos, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the people who call themselves mestizos are correct in saying by this time, they kind of constitute a distinct ancestral population. So we can't disaggregate the data according to all the different combinations of Latinos. And that, that's a problem, which I mentioned in the book. In terms of uh, whites, it's not nearly as much of a problem as some people might say. You know, with things like 23andMe, uh, you now have 23andMe is this thing where you send in your saliva and you get back your your 17% Welsh and 21% Dutch, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so they have very large samples now. And other, there are other large databases that use uh, genomic uh, uh, profiles of our ancestral population. And essentially, 
people who self-identify as whites in America, non-Latino whites, are about 98% European ancestry. It's really high. With blacks, it has been thought that the proportion of the white admixture might average as high as 22-25%. The recent genomic databases indicate that's somewhat overstated. So you have, uh, it's, it's more like 12%, 15%, depending on which database you use. It, it, that still means that self-identified blacks are overwhelmingly have very large majority of their ancestral population is African. However, actually, the mixture of races gives us some leverage in trying to figure out what's going on genetically. Because if you no longer treat people as you know, binary races, black, white, Asian, and so forth, and instead treat them according to their genetic profiles, you've got a continuum. And if you've got a continuum of genetic profiles, then you can analyze the data, not using uh, this categorical variable called race. Sorry for the jargon, but, but you're using a continuous variable uh, called ancestral genetics. Mm-hmm. And, and presumably you could then make lots of useful inferences. Anyway, the short story is self-identification is extremely accurate with Asians and uh, whites, it is much more accurate than people have usually assumed in terms of blacks, and Latinos are the real problem child. Let's talk a bit about the big city, small city distinction you make in the book. You note how the same racial groups have different outcomes when accounting for the big city, small city distinction. Might this be a helpful lens for understanding other factors contributing to different outcomes besides race? Well, the... One of my chief preoccupations for the last 10 years has been the difference in daily life in megalopolis America and in small city and small town America. The the difference, for those of you who've only lived in megalopolises or in their suburbs, you have no idea what life is like in, in small city and small town America. I live in small town America. We leave our doors unlocked. Uh, local organizations are vibrant and active and and all sorts of things in the community have nothing to do with what government's doing and a lot to do with what people are uh, taking problems into their own hands. It's, it's kind of like Alexis de Tocqueville described in the 1830s in small city and small town America, whereas in the megalopolises, for a variety of reasons, it's inevitable that that doesn't work so well anymore. So that's the big difference that I see between the cultures in those two. In terms of racial differences in those, the one that that I think may be the most interesting is Latino crime rates, violent Mm -hmm. crime rates, where the evidence I have in the book is only suggestive. I need lots more cities before I could make a stronger statement. I think it's quite possible that Latino white ratios of violent crime are large only in big cities. And I think probably that probably a lot of that stems from gang activity. Uh, in smaller cities, the tentative evidence is that uh, Latino crime rates are very close to white violent crime rates. Uh, I won't go any farther than that, but I think that's really interesting. In terms of cognitive ability, no, there really isn't that difference. Uh, in terms of 
big city and small town and so forth. It's pretty much applies across the board. In terms of black crime rates, they seem to be, the ratios seem to be pretty high in the smaller cities as well as in the larger cities. Their largest, the black-white ratios and violent crime, they're largest in big cities. In Washington, D.C., for the year something like 2013 to 2019, uh, it was 19.9 to 1, which is huge. But in New York, it was more than 10 to 1. And uh, Chicago and Los Angeles also had very high ratios. So in those regards, um, I don't think that the big city, small city distinction is so important. Shifting gears a little bit, you said in Chapter 2 that one of the main objections that you hear a lot with uh, what you, um, you know, have been putting forth in terms of uh, educational outcomes is uh, that we can fix it. But you actually express skepticism of that. Um, likewise, with inner city violence and crime rates, you say that there are inherent obstacles and challenges and lament that every policy proposal that has uh, tried has been unsuccessful. Do you think there is any policy that would work to fix either of these things? Well, yeah, I do. Uh, they are not politically acceptable. I'll tell you something that would make, I don't know if it will raise the IQ of black students. I kind of doubt it. But will it radically improve their education? That is that if urban school systems take as their primary goal to make sure that they educate the children who are trying to learn. That means as a practical matter that if a student is acting up in class, the teacher can easily, with no consequences, uh, professional consequences, send the child to the principal's office uh, where that child will be kept out of the classroom and, uh, and, and only let back in when they promise to behave. And if they misbehave again, they are going to be taken out of the classroom for a longer period of time. And you, you make sure, no matter what is required, that teachers have an orderly classroom in which they can teach the children who want to learn. That is a huge policy change. It also probably means you may need special classrooms for the problem students where you put them all in one bunch, but do whatever is necessary. Teach the kids who want to learn. That's one thing. Here's something that doesn't have a policy prescription, but would be hugely important. And that would be to turn around the much commented upon cultural characteristic of, of African-American young people to make fun of their classmates who study hard and try to get good grades for acting white. That kind of dismissiveness of education and achievement in education, so many people have made this point. Uh, that, that has to be devastating to, uh, to talented young people or just conscientious young people who would otherwise try to do as well as they could in school. We haven't talked about uh, what I consider to be the, the great existential threat to the American experiment, uh, but it is if... I'm guessing you're not going to say the designated hitter. Excuse me? I'm guessing you're not going to say the designated hitter. <laughs> but, uh, well, we should take up that part of the book at some yeah. point, but I will uh, state the, for the record 
that another policy solution that I'm increasingly uh, of the opinion that we must try to make it politically practical is to root out every form of preferential treatment by race that is the, within the government's control of its own behavior. In other words, root out every government mandated affirmative action program, every government established uh, set aside for minority uh, contractors, everything which treats people differently by race and say we are going back to 1964 and 1963 and the principles of Martin Luther King. And uh, the, the, the goal is to make sure that all Americans get a fair shake, mm-hmm. that, uh, that they are treated for who they are as individuals, uh, not for their membership in group, and it is race is not a moral permiss- morally permissible reason for the government to treat some Americans differently from other Americans. I think we have to go that route. I know it sounds impossible, but I think I think that affirmative action is responsible for some huge proportion of the present crisis that we find ourselves in. To follow up on the idea of policy positions, Jason Riley of the Manhattan Institute has suggested one way to change or lessen the black-white education gap is by, he points to the successes of charter schools and improving black student outcomes across the board. Likewise, you call it broken windows policing, he calls it tough on crime policing, uh, but he argues that at the very least, tough on crime will protect people in inner city high crime neighborhoods. But back to the education and the black-white education gap, do you think that if charter schools and other alternative schools become more of a new norm, that we could see this gap decrease um, just because they're you know, doing something differently in terms of student motivation or simply making students take learning more seriously? Well, I've, I've always been an advocate of uh, as much school choice as possible, including vouchers, um, charter schools, you name it. I think the more control the parents have over their children's education, uh, the better things will get. Now, I have recently had to rethink my confidence in that because the consumption choices, education consumption choices of rich white Americans are so ridiculous in many cases that I'm beginning to wonder whether uh, you can trust parents to make good choices, but I certainly don't trust government bureaucrats <laughs> to make better ones. But my reference to the idiotic decisions of rich white parents is people who send their kids to schools like Dalton in New York and to other private schools, which are just as woke in their uh, curriculum as any public school, and why they're paying $40,000 a year uh, for uh, private schools that teach things that are antithetical to their own values just mystifies me. You spend some time in the book talking about the military, which is one of the few professions that actually requires an exam for job placement. And then you give some insightful points about how that has affected job performance levels between the races. So if you could, just please share that with our listeners. It's very simple. uh, When looking at the job performance literature, every single occupation shows a significant difference in job performance between blacks and whites and so forth. Uh, with one exception, military. What does the military do? First, uh, you cannot get into the military unless you meet a baseline score on what's known as the uh, AFQT or the uh, AS, 
ASVAB, ASVAB, which is the which are are these uh, test uh, batteries that are administered, and you don't get in to the military unless you are. It differs according to the branch of the military. So you don't have people at the very bottom of the distribution. You've cut off a lot of those. And the second thing is you do not go into a military operational specialty just because you want to. Uh, you have to have an appropriate score on your your vocational ab, uh, uh, aptitude battery uh, that says, yeah, this guy can be an effective radio technician or whatever. Doing those two things does not completely get rid of the difference in job performance in the military, but the other elements in the military of, uh, of, of job performance are not cognitive. They are military bearing and discipline. And so the upshot is that whites have a small advantage over blacks in, in uh, technical job performance, but blacks have a small advantage over whites in discipline and military bearing. And you add all those up, and blacks and whites are either equal or blacks have a small advantage in the military. I think private enterprise could take a close look at the military and try to adopt as much of that uh, mindset as possible. As we bring this podcast to a close, we wanted to give our listeners a sense of where you left things at the end of your book on your view of racism in America. So quoting from one of the last few pages, you write, my own overarching position is that racism persists in America, but it persists in spite of the American system and its institutions, not because of them. Many of the problems are systemic, but they will not be solved by going after racism. They will be solved or ameliorated by going after systemic educational problems, systemic law enforcement problems, systemic employment problems. Those problems are exacerbated by individual racism. The racism is not systemic. It's an insightful analysis, but help us understand it better. Are those problems you identify systemic in the sense that disparities and discrimination do occur at various points at a personal level, but that it's not institutionalized oppression? Am I saying that? Yeah. Look, uh, I have no idea what the level of racism is that exists in various domains of American life. I would be guessing if I had to say it. Uh, we do know that the American job market is systemically biased in favor of minorities, as long as you're not an Asian minority. I mean, you, you get hired for jobs. You get promoted once you're on the job with qualifications that are oftentimes demonstrably inferior to the people who don't get hired or the people who don't get promoted. I think that... I, I misspoke in that sense. I think we do have systemic racism in the labor market, but it's reverse racism. In terms of the, the other things, the policing and the rest of it, um, I have no idea how big it is, but I do know that you have an awful lot of black cops who do exactly the same kind of things that people complain about white cops doing. I do know you have lots of police departments run by African-Americans who, with African-Americans in, in the senior positions, with the mayor being African-American. And I'm saying, you know, this does not look like systemic racism in the police department. Uh, it's very hard to say that the problems are the result of that. But in all of these instances, I guess I'm asking whites and blacks and Latinos and Asians 
to look at their own personal experiences that they have had and make as honest an assessment as they can of the degree to which they have been held back, punished, or otherwise disadvantaged because of their race. And I think you are going to find if with a clinical self-evaluation, I think you're going to find the great majority of Black and Latino Americans would say, have I ever experienced racism? Yeah. Has that made a big difference in where I've gone in life? No. Can't prove that's true, but I, I wish we would start looking at our life experiences from that perspective. Well, on that note, Charles Murray, thank you so much for being with us on our James Wilson podcast. The book is Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America from Encounter Books. We encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy from the publisher. This was a treat. Thank you so much, Charles. Been my pleasure. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.